Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 1. Romans 6 and verse 1, and we'll be reading to verse uh, 14. Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 1, and we'll be looking uh, to verse 14 as we continue our study uh, in the book of Romans. You probably find yourselves from uh, time to time making a statement of some sort that uh, people may not quite understand and may take it the wrong way. Uh, or maybe you might make a statement, maybe if you're either you're a parent or maybe you're teaching in school, you give instructions to the students and then they use those instructions and then they look for ways, a, a loophole, where, well, you never said this or you didn't tell me to do this or it wasn't just, uh, you know, just real specific about it. And so that sometimes is the danger of just making general statements. It's, you don't know how people are going to understand. You don't know if they're going to take it the right way or they're going to take it the wrong way. And then you have to spend some time trying to explain, oh, well, this, this is kind of what I mean. And so this is kind of where we are when we get into Romans chapter 6. Is Paul has been making some really dramatic statements about the nature of salvation and the work of Christ. And maybe if we could summarize what Paul has been stating thus far beginning with chapter 3 and verse 21, all the way to where we are, it's probably summarized what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. There is not anything that we can do to achieve or to receive this salvation to ourselves. And so with that statement that Paul has been making these last two or three chapters, then that leads some questions that people may be asking. So Paul has written consistently about salvation, about justification with God's grace, and the Lord Jesus in view. And there is nothing we can do to work, merit, or earn salvation. Jesus alone lived a truly righteous life. He alone died for our sins. He alone rose from the dead for our justification and everlasting life. It is Jesus alone who saves. There is nothing we can do, not even in the context of the Christian life. That when we live this Christian life, it is all by grace. We are saved by God alone, past, present, and future. In fact, all of this is actually what made the Reformation so important. In fact, there was a simple formula for Luther, and it was translated righteous while at the same time sinner. And this means that from one perspective we are righteous, in another sense we are sinners. In other words, in and of ourselves, under the view of God, we still have sins. We're still sinners. But by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, whose righteousness is now a credit to our life, we are now accounted, we are reckoned, we are seen as righteous, purely righteous, perfectly righteous. And so all of this actually brings to the question of verse 1. So if you look with me, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul's been making this statement about the reality and the nature of salvation by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. 
And if all of this is achieved by God, then that must mean that it really doesn't matter what I do, how I live. If, if he's achieved salvation for me by the work of Christ, then can we just continue in sin? And so, if, if this uh, statement is true that he makes, or the question he's asking is, statement he's perceiving that generates this question, if this is true about the nature of salvation, won't people take advantage of it? If there is no work, no righteous that one can do, won't we just coast? If I'm a sinner with Christ's righteousness, does it matter if I sin? What does it keep people from saying, I'll take that salvation that Christ has worked, and I'll just live how I want? So this is the question that Paul specifically addressed. And the question more specifically springs from what he said earlier in chapter 5 and verses 20 through 21, if you'll notice what he says. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Over and over again in this text, there is a much more quality to God's saving grace. It is such that where sin is multiplied, that grace is multiplied even more. So if the power of grace is magnified, the more sin multiplies, then it raises the question that is asked in verse 1. I want to magnify God's grace, so one of the ways I'm going to magnify God's grace is sin more. Because where there's sin, there's more grace. And isn't that what you want, Paul? You want more of grace. That's the gospel. That's the word that you're preaching. You're preaching grace, grace, more grace. Now, what Paul says in chapter 5 and verses 20 through 21, as we look at that verse that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, that that's great news for sinners. That's great news for me. We have so many sins that is compounded one on the other. Every thought, every intent, every action that we do, it is full of sin. Yet in God's grace, in the Lord Jesus, is magnified exponentially more than all of our sins. But with the great news, there are detractors and those that are looking for loopholes. Paul's opponents have often accused him of preaching a liberal gospel. That you don't take seriously the nature of sin. That you don't take seriously the holiness of God. And so this question may be precipitated by those people, but it could also be precipitated by those who are looking for loopholes. Who are saying, I will take this great news of of." grace being multiplied over my sin, and I'll just keep sinning and living my life how I want to. And so that's what brings this question at hand. If salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, won't this encourage people to sin and discourage people from pursuing righteousness? And so Paul's answer to this is given in verse 2 with a strong negation. He repudiates such a claim to the strongest and most emphatic degree. If you'll notice there in verse 2, the way it translated in my translation is certainly not exclamation point. Other translations, absolutely not. 
and really the way that this word is used is it's used in such a way to really bring to the height of saying no. That when Paul perceives this question that is being asked, he's saying, no, no, absolutely not. That's inconceivable. And so he's saying no to the strongest way to that question. So what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. 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 That's not at all how this works. So he repudiates this in the strongest way possible. Any suggestion that grace encourages sin. In fact, it's the exact opposite. That if anything, grace discourages sin. It mitigates sin. It frees us from the power and the dominion of sin. Because under the law, under our own sinful status as we are in Adam, as Adam had sinned and and his sin has passed on to all of us and now we sin under that, we are nothing but sinners. We are bound to do nothing but sin. But by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the cross, through his resurrection, through the justification that we receive by faith, it frees us from sin. And frees us to live in such a way that our life can actually be pleasing to God. Before Christ, there's nothing that we do that pleases God. Everything, every intent, every good work, everything that we think that we do that is good, before Christ, it's sin, full of sin. But in Christ, by his grace, we can actually be pleasing to God in what we work and what we do. Because it is Christ who works in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for Paul, there is no inconceivable way that grace encourages sin. For someone to even suggest that the sinless Lord Jesus... The Son of God who hates sin, died for sin, took our punishment for sin, and saved us from sin so that we could continue in sin is insulting to the name of Christ. It's insulting to the gospel that Jesus professes, that he preached, that Paul preaches. And as the text progresses, it shows us that sin no longer actually has power over the believer. So not only have we been transferred from sin to righteous, but we've also been transformed. And so that's really what's at the heart of chapter 6, that grace grace not only transfers us from sin to righteousness, but grace also transforms us to live a righteous life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is where Paul goes, and he begins to explain exactly what happens. And so in these first few verses, he's telling us that sin does not maximize grace. Sin does not maximize grace. And so these are the, this is the question that he's answering. And now he's going to elaborate on his answer. So he says, certainly not. In verse 2, how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? And then in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we 
were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so that we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So one of the things that we find here that Paul is telling his audience, which includes us, is that the reason that we do not continue in sin is because we have died to sin. We have died to sin. So the reason for the repudiation, the negative answer in verse 2, is those who have died to sin no longer live in it. Now, it is true that in justification, the believer is dead to sin forensically. And what I mean by that is that the person who is justified is now acquitted of their sins. It's as though they stand before the judge and the judge acquits them of all charges. That's what I mean, that they are justified or they're dead to sins, forensically speaking. They're acquitted by the judge of their sins. But even more, believers are not only acquitted, but they are also giving a standing, a new standing. There is this standing of righteousness. But this idea of dying to sin is more than just one standing as well. Not only does the cross event of the Lord Jesus give the believer a righteous standard, but it has transformed their whole life. Grace doesn't simply involve a forgiveness of sin. It also involves a transfer to lordship so that believers are no longer under sin. Paul actually expects his readers to know this truth as you look in verse 3. Or do you not know? But this is a truth that should be obvious to him. Maybe it's something that he had taught them previously. Or maybe it's just common sense. It's just the outworking of the gospel and the outworking of grace. That surely born-again Christians would look at grace as not an opportunity to maximize sin, but an opportunity to minimize sin. That surely that born-again Christians, that their minds would be transformed to such a degree that when they see grace, that it gravitates them to Jesus and his works, and trying to mirror him in their own life instead of detracting them away from it. And so this is something that they should know. So Paul wants them to have a laser-like focus and to bend their ears to hear exactly what he is saying about the nature of salvation in a Christian's life and their relationship to sin. So grace doesn't simply involve forgiveness it involves a transfer of lordship and by transfer of lordship i mean a lordship from sin to lordship now to righteousness that that when we don't have salvation when we're not in the lord jesus christ we are under the dominion of sin and death but through salvation he has freed us that now we are under the lordship and the dominion of christ And the way that he calls us to live, to mirror his life in what we do every day. So Paul expects them to know this truth. That as Christians, that we have died with Christ in baptism. Now he uses baptism because it's a way of expressing the conversion experience. The baptism is a a concept of showing how believers are united with his once and for all death. So the reference to baptism, water, is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since unbaptized, 
Christians were virtually non-existent. To refer to those who were baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians, those who have repented of their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other reason that baptism is used in this text is because it really captures the imagery of dying to sins. This idea of being put into the water, we're being buried, we are being dying to our old life, to sins, and then we're being raised to walk in the newness of life. So he uses baptism not only as a designation for Christian in a conversion experience, but he also uses baptism as an illustration of what's happening. Just as you were baptized, don't you remember how you died to your sins, how you went out into the water, and that was a portrayal of your death to your old life, that you died to sins. And baptism also, it communicates the imagery of identifying with Christ, where we are immersed, where we are drenched, where we are soaked with Christ. In a great degree. And so no, notice this, emphasize, this emphasis here that we find in this text also as it relates to the union with Christ. This distinct and, and unique connection that we have with Christ when we become believers. Those who are baptized belong to Christ and are united to him. So if you look in verses 3 through 4, it tells us that you're baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death, and then again into death. So he wants to emphasize union with Christ. That we are united with Christ. That we are in a relationship with Christ in a distinct and very radical way that is transformative. And so it's really hinting at this idea that you can't be united to Christ and also at the same time be united to sin. Because you've died to sin and now you are united to the person of Jesus Christ. But not only does he speak of the idea of dying to sin, he also speaks about how we have been raised with Christ in his resurrection. This is another thing that's, com- that's communicated in the imagery of baptism. As you come out of the water, signifying, symbolizing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our own resurrection and our own new lordship, if you will. We've been raised to walk in the newness of life. So the dying to sin serves a purpose which is to be raised to walk in the newness of life. In our salvation experience, as illustrated in baptism, we do not just unite with Christ in his death, but also his resurrection. And there's a strong affirmation relating to the factuality to Christ's resurrection in this text. He was dead, but God raised him. I think that's really important for us to think about that. That when Paul speaks about the resurrection, he speaks about it as a historical reality, a historical fact. All across this world, people will accept the historicity of Jesus Christ, and they will accept the historicity of his death, but they will not accept the historicity of his resurrection. And so the biblical authors in the gospel and those that came after the, the, uh, the disciples or those that um, did not necessarily see with their eyes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Apostle Paul, he speaks about it from a historical perspective. And one of the reasons that he can speak about it from a historical perspective is because he had seen the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
He didn't see him like the disciples saw him after he rose again and was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. But Jesus appeared to him bodily and visibly. And so Paul speaks about his resurrection as a historical fact and a reality. But Paul also relates in this text God's glory in the resurrection, referring to his divine honor, splendor, divine radiance, and power. And the power of God was gloriously exercised in raising Jesus from the dead. As we see there in the latter part of verse 4, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That he was raised in glory, and since we are also raised with him, then it speaks also about our own resurrection. Not only, not the spiritual resurrection, which is communicated in the act of baptism, where we are raised to walk in the newness of life, I think it also has a, a future aspect if we think about when Christ comes again. There will be a resurrection. That our bodies will be transformed into a glorious body. A body that is, doesn't have the effects of sin, the, the damage of decay and mortality, but we will be raised with him in immortality and all by the glory of God. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, the believer walks in the newness of life. The one who has repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, they walk in the newness of life. The newness of life is everything, not just a part of life, but all of life. Our, our mind, what's in our heart, how we, how we react, how we behave, the newness of life applies to every bit of us. Everything in our life is new. And this idea of being new corresponds with the realities of the new age. That's what Christ came to do. He came to inaugurate. He came to bring the new age. The old age is characterized by Adam and sin and death. The new age is characterized by the new Adam, the second Adam, as we saw in chapter 5. And in this new Adam, the second Adam, he brings life and he brings righteousness. So that's what he means when he speaks about raised to walk in the newness of life. We have this new life in front of us, this fresh life, if you will, in front of us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the newness of life is a life that is empowered by the realities of a new age, realizing that we do not walk according to, to this age, this present evil age, but we walk according to a different age. We live a different life. We have different thoughts. We have a, a different worldview. In fact, it seems like today in the world that we live in that, that the worldview that we as Christians have is so starkly different, dramatically and drastically different than it was from the world, say, 20 years ago. You know, I... One of the things I've been thinking about in my own life is I feel like I'm becoming more and more conservative in the things that I believe. And then it dawned on me, I still believe the same things I've always believed. The problem is, is that the world is getting so, so sinful. And that behaviors that are accepted nowadays are just categorically condemned in Scripture. Um, 
And so I, you know, I've, I've tried to, I try to reevaluate a lot of times my thinking and my worldview and thinking, am I just an old curmudgeon? Which the answer to that is partly yes. Um, but, the, but the other part of it is I, it, this is just a reality of Christians, that in this world that we live in, we are, we are fish out of water. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We have a different allegiance. We have a different way of thinking about everything. And I want to say this to you, that the way that we think about life is right. Our worldview is right. And there are going to be times because of of the preponderance of culture and our friends and even those people who claim to be Christians and claim to go to church, that they're going to look at us as though that we are borderline conspiracy theorists or crazy nuts, but we're right. And in the end, the truth will, will win. The truth will win. And so we, we walk according to a different reality because we don't live in this age. We live in a new age. And we have a different king, and our allegiance is, is to Jesus and his word and his command and what he calls us to do. And that's going to bring persecution and ridicule and making us feel more and more like we just do not belong in this age. But that's been true with Christians all across the ages and even across the world, that they live a life that is fundamentally different from societies. Just think just for a moment that Christians in Iran, how different and how isolated and how alone they are in what they believe and what they think in their worldview. And they live this life with their life on the line, literally for it. And the reason they live that life is because they have been raised to walk in the newness of life. They live in the new age, the age of Christ, the age of righteousness and holiness in life, and not that of the old age of sin and darkness. And so the new life is a reality for the believer's life, but it also must be lived out. So this is how Paul is pushing against the suggestion that grace and sin are compatible. He pushes against this suggestion by saying specifically that you have died to sin, to no longer live in it, and you have been raised so that you can live in such a way that manifest that you are part of the new age, that you are living for Christ, that the way that you live is declaring your allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. In this way in which you live, this newness of life, it's not brought about as a consequence by our own ability and our own self, but it's brought about because it is Christ who lives within us and dwells within us and empowers us and gives us the grace to live as we should. Now, I want to say just one more thing about this text, and then we're going to finish this up. Especially as it relates to this concept, if we look back and the question that Paul is answering, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, certainly not. Now, one of the things that this text does is specific about is against a notion that can be popular in Christianity today is that we don't get all that we need at conversion. Uh, this, this conception is that you, um, 
you, if this is the terminology, and I've actually heard this with my own ears. In fact, I actually heard somebody say this in a different way this week that I was having lunch with, that you make Jesus your Savior, and then later on he becomes your Lord. And so what that means is, is that you, you, you make this profession of faith and you're, you're baptized. Jesus has saved you, but it really hasn't made a lot of difference in your life. At some point in your life, you're going to get a second experience of some sort where Jesus becomes your Lord, and then you start living for him. And so this is used, I, I think, a lot of times for um, people to try to justify the conversion experiences that happens a lot of times of why people come down to the altar and they say a certain prayer and they're baptized, but they don't see any real dramatic difference in their life. And so what they will say is, is that they've made Jesus their Savior, but he's not actually their Lord yet. And this text right here is very clear, that when you are converted, your allegiance shifts immediately. You don't need more of Christ later on down your life. When you get saved, you have all of Christ then. There's not more of Christ to to receive some period. When you become saved, you have all of Christ. That's the emphasis here in this text about being baptized into him. You're buried with him. Into him, you have all of Christ. The, the baptism imagery, you're immersed in Christ. You are soaked in Christ. You are drenched in Christ. You have all of Christ at conversion. Now, what does happen in the Christian life as it relates to maturity is that, that all of Christ that we have, we begin to grow more knowledge of him through our life as we read. And as we grow more in knowledge in him, then we begin to appropriate all of Christ in our life. So all that we need to live the Christian life has been given to us at conversion. We have all of Christ's strength, all of Christ's power, all of Christ's help to live for him. Christ has transformed us. He has freed us from the dominion of sin. And now we live to know him more and to appropriate him more. Now, one of the things that I think is important for me to say as well is that this does not negate the fact that as we live this Christian life that we're not going to struggle with sin. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what this text is saying. But what I would like to say is that I think it's important for us as Christians to not resign ourselves to sin. And what I mean by that is is that sometimes we we sin and we say, well, I mean, it's just going to happen. We're just going to sin. And that's resigning ourselves to that reality. Instead of when we sin is being broken by that, it says, this is not my nature. This is not who I am. And to ask the help of the Lord Jesus for us to live for him and to appropriate all of him in our life. So as we think about this text, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And may we all say with Paul, absolutely not. We have died to sin. We have been raised to walk in the newness of life. And like Christ, we hate sin. We hate it. And we don't want it to characterize 
our lives. So may God help us to live for him and his glory. Let's pray together.